Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Hello, good evening. Uh, welcome to this uh, very special, special guest event, uh, sponsored by, very generously by, the Crime Vault at Little Brown Book Group. Uh, I'm Mark Billingham, and I first met the gentleman I'm going to be sharing the stage with tonight about 30 years ago. Uh, when we were both struggling stand-up comedians. Um, I struggled on for a little bit and then stopped and wrote some crime novels, which was a pretty smart move uh, and a very popular move with comedy lovers everywhere. Uh, he, on the other hand, went on to become pretty much the most acclaimed stand-up comedian of his generation, uh, as well as a hugely successful actor and, uh, more recently, a political campaigner and activist. Uh, tonight... I'm not going to interview him, he's not going to interview me, we are in conversation, we are just going to chat, we are just going to have a chinwag about what? I have no idea. Um, I'm, no, I'm a professional, I'm normally ruthlessly prepared. I would normally be up here with a clipboard, with a list of questions, often laminated, okay? I like to prepare, but anybody who is familiar with this man's work knows that there really isn't any point doing that. We could end up talking about anything, and hopefully we will. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up and welcome the magnificent Mr. Eddie Izzard! He's coming. <laughs> I always knew. It. <laughs> oh. oh, do you want to? Are you not happy with the seating? Okay, let's swap over. All right, let's do that. We I, I pushed, but they've got this. Mark's got the hat, the, the curve, the thing. Yeah, the Madonna. I said, I said no, not the thing. I'm, I'm just talking through this. So I've got okay. Mine's here, so that's why. And if I don't sound terribly good, then I'll just keep doing that, which yeah. sounds better. I want. I, I was uh, remembering. Where, there you go. <laughs> the, uh, he didn't see that. When I, we first met, well, I can remember exactly where we were when we first met. We first met, like I say, almost 30 years ago, mid 80s, and we were both standing outside. In a, in a, above a pub, there was this club above a pub called The Guilty P. To this day, I have no idea why it was this called The Guilty P. true P. story. Uh, and the venue held about 15 people. I mean, it was just ridiculous. You didn't need microphones or anything like that. We were both standing in the corridor above this pub waiting to go on. And I remember that's where we first met. And I was thinking the other day, 15 people, and like a couple of weeks ago, you played the Hollywood Bowl. How mental is that? Just how completely barking is that journey? That is a journey of ego and... Uh, <laughs> Well, see, the guilty P, I think the guilty P implies that it was a crime novel mm. venue because it was guilty of something. The P must have killed a sprout <laughs> or a carrot. And, I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't make any sense to us. But, you know, some clubs are called the Chuck Club, the Laughter Club, the Comedy Stuff, and the Guilty Pea, and we still do not know. And I was not allowed to play there once I... Because once, I played a really good... I was telling you this earlier. I played a really good gig there, and I, saw, I felt I blew it away, which is a very good thing in our, in our world. And uh, I killed them. I killed them. It's in the vernacular. And then, so I tried to phone up Kate, who ran it, and I think she didn't get back to me for a while, and then it got too long. And then I was saying, Kate, can I have another gig? I did really well. I'm doing pretty good now. Kate, and she just never got back to me ever again. <laughs> I should now find out, Kate, I've played Hollywood Bowl twice now. I've played it twice now. Um, can I please play the game? Actually, it's gone. It's gone, hasn't it? The club. I think it's I gone. Think I think she might book you, though. I think she might book you now. No, she'd still be embarrassed. Would I she? Yeah. But we, they do use that language in comedy. It's a weird thing, isn't yeah. it? I slayed him, I killed him, yeah. or alternatively, I died. You know, yes. it's all very brutal, a language, isn't it? I, I think it is a brutal um, thing. I... <laughs> It's the, the you must have died. Oh, you, many were times. you always a double act? No, 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 no. For the last sort of ten years, it was just me. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's uh, it's such a, a tragic uh, thing when you die because you've gone up there and said, "Hey, um, look at my thing." So I look at my vegetables. Look at my whatever. If someone goes, "Look at what I can do," and everyone goes, "No, you cannot do this. This is rubbish." <laughs> Uh, why are you here? And then you have to go away. I mean, it's just... Worst death. What was your worst death? Uh, comedy store. After... Who was... Um, oh, God. Name's going out of my head. Um, um, a Scottish comedian. Uh, his stuff could tra tra travel into the... He took off and was playing huge places. Um, 
but it could go slightly sort of racy, not in the great area. Um, and they went to magic, went to magic. Um, went to magic? Yes. Jerry Sadowitz. Jerry, Jerry Sadowitz. Sadowitz. Okay, you won't know. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. No, I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they had a thing at the comedy store. The comedy store would, um, they would uh, put the new acts who had done nothing on after the most experienced act who could kill an audience. So the audience, and, and when Jerry Sadowitz would play, he would play, do stuff that was really funny, and then stuff that I thought, Jerry, I don't, you can't, I don't think you should go there. That's not, that sounds kind of, you know, in a, in a weird place or in a xenophobic place. And, and he would just cruise around this area and everyone would just go nuts. And late night was about, you know, could be two in the morning, three in the morning on a Friday night. So it wasn't even a Saturday night. So they're even madder at the comedy store at this time. And then once the audience was baying like dogs, going, oh my God, where, what then, then you'd go, now new people. They'd bring on part <laughs> of three new people. Please welcome um, new people. Yes, people who know nothing. <laughs> and uh, we would die the death of it was gladiators you know it was uh, what well, we, we were christians and lions it was it was and the weirdest thing is that when you die there's always another comic who's on their phone instantly going eddie's just died at the comedy store and it will go it will just go What's round that? the circuit and you, uh, they love I, it they love it comedians. i think if you if you once you're established they would do that but i think when you were I, my stage of of that early death thing they wouldn't they wouldn't bother to pick up that. and actually phones didn't exist at that point that's true they were <laughs> so these big ones these re- they would drum they would drum they would get tin cans with cords yeah. and say so. I, 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 I had a hideous death once at a club called jonglers in north london oh. and sometimes it's some, most times it's not your fault it genuinely isn't you know, you're doing the same act you did three hours before when yeah. you were carried shoulder high around the room. And you come and say, and I was the last act on, it was two in the morning, and they just looked at me and went, no. Just no. And I struggled on for about ten minutes just to utter silence. And then there was somebody in the front row and I just started talking to this person, and I think they were Polish, and I just started going, oh, what's Polish for, you know, anything. What's Polish for just lots of rude words. Just, it was so desperate. And I started to get a little bit of reaction. I thought, I'm just going to get this back. And then the bloke at the back went, what's Polish for your shit? And it was... <laughs> That's it. I had an inverse one of that, and it's called jonglers, which is French for yeah. juggling, which is, you know, I'm very positive on the French, but don't, why? Mm, uh, guilty P. Anyway, but I did a gig there, and I didn't like them. They were yuppies. If anyone remembers the days of yuppies, it was you know, young, upwardly mobile professionals, the loads of money kind of brigade, and they had a lot of hen nights and stag nights. They didn't really care about comedy. Um, they were just sort of animals again. And, uh, and I, I, I learned to do it so I could get it and I could do very surreal stuff like saying I went to school with Perez de Quayla and Butchus Butchus Gali and I would say very odd stuff. Just it was surreal and weird and, and, and I, squirrels playing banjos. And I'd do it quite fast and they'd get into a weird state and I could, I could sort of deliver it. But I wouldn't look at them because I didn't like them. So I'd look over them <laughs> I'd, and I'd perform up here. And then I remember I, I, I nailed it at the jonglers, which is a tricky thing to do. So I'd, bam, that's the gig. And I was walking off through the audience. And then Tim Clark, who's one of the hosts, one of the compares, went on. He said, did you like that? And they went, yeah. Went, OK, that's good. That's good. And then he says, do you want to see some more? And I went, no. go back on and say more And it's where, when they're funnier than you are, there was a very notorious club called the Tunnel Club in South oh, yeah. London. That, well, it's where the hecklers would kind of rehearse. They would, <laughs> it was like they would get together and go, who's doing the heckles this week? Which of us? And uh, Jim Tavare, who's a brilliant comedian who we both worked with, went on once and his opening line was, good evening, I'm a schizophrenic. And he just went, good evening, I'm a schizophrenic. And the bloke went, well, the pair of you can fuck off then. <laughs> that, uh, that, that is genius, isn't it? That is very clever. What? I felt that was run by Malcolm Hardy, it and, was. and Malcolm thought I didn't like him. But I just the way he ran the tunnel, it was the, the audience. It, you were base, I think you were cannon fodder for the audience. I didn't feel it was really about comedy. It was more about yeah. what way can you die that would uh, would impress the audience in your death. So I actually, st- I just it wouldn't play. But you you came from street performance. Yeah. So you were playing in kind of Covent Garden, doing. Yes. So I mean that's a that's a baptism of fire. I mean. Well, that is a baptism of fire. That's why I played Hollywood Bowl because a lot of other great comedians could have played Hollywood Bowl, but they didn't because it's an outdoor gig. You see, we're kind of happy in here, but if we took the roof off now, um, I don't know how you'd feel on that, because it, it goes we'll into, go. it's, it's like taking the roof down in the car. You, it's just an odder thing. So I'm quite used to playing outdoors, because I've played Covent Garden so many times, and that's why Hollywood Bowl is fine for me, but it's not on everyone's cup of tea. But um, what were we just talking about? Um, I was going to make a, oh, I've forgotten it. It's one of those good stories. I'm getting old now, so. It's what, the, what were we just talking about before that? 
I have no idea. Anyway. But heckler's <laughs> the Tunnel Club. The Tunnel oh, Club. Oh, the Tunnel Club. Yes, there was one. There's called the Crocodile Club in Brighton. Oh yeah. And you, uh, you probably know this story. This was an interesting one. Um, um, Michael Douglas, um, Kirk, Doug Kirk Douglas had four sons, one of whom went, uh, decided he wanted to do stand-up. He wasn't doing stand-up before. And Eric. Eric. You know the story? Yeah. And he decided he would do stand-up. He came to Britain to do stand-up, probably because it was just a bit off the map and whatever. And he went down to the Brighton Co uh, uh, Crocodile Club and he was doing his stuff, which wasn't going very well because he wasn't that experienced. But he was getting a position higher than normal because he was, you know, Eric Douglas. And at one point, it wasn't going well and they were quite a fun, they were funny with their heckles. It was a different kind of vibe. They were just kind of witty. And at one point, he said, you can't do this to me. I'm Kirk Douglas's son. <laughs> now, if anyone knows the film Spartacus, Kirk Douglas was in Spartacus. <laughs> so, so he said, you can't do this. Right? I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And then someone from the back of the room said, no, I'm Kirk Douglas. <laughs> and then boom, 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 boom. No, I'm Kirk Douglas's son. I'm, and that's true. That's true, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I wasn't there, but it was a, a, such a legendary story. It is story. a legendary story. And uh, one guy came on once at the comedy store and for some reason, best known unto himself, ten minutes he just did mime. Some, I don't know, I think, I think somebody wound him up. He walked on in front of like 400 people at a comedy store and he's just miming. You know, he's trapped in a box and, you know, walking against the wind and then a bloke at the back goes, Oh, you speak up, I'm blind. <laughs> just just but, but it was a two-part heckle. The heckler waited, a bit, uh, waited about 30 seconds and then went, Has he gone yet? <laughs> That's brilliant. That's when they're funnier than no. you. And if... If you're doing quite, if you're okay and have confidence, or, or if you, I think you need to be doing okay. If the heckle is funny, you can just give yeah. applaudits to the heckle, and then that laughter sort of comes to you. You can, you can, it goes into your show. You, you were you always it. one of those acts. There are, and I was certainly not one of those acts where, if you would get a heckle, you would freeze. There would be a little because you don't want them. You don't want the heckles, and they would come and you would freeze, and there'd be a little moment of panic. But you were one of those acts. I think Bill Bailey is another another act like that, where the heckle you'd kind of go, oh come on then. Let's yes. play. You know, it kind of well, opened it up. It, it, I, and I only did that because they are scary, but um, I realised psychologically that the audience, if you're, as long as you're doing okay, if you're actually doing badly, then the heckler, it, it, it's, it's just, you're just, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's Butch Cassidy in the Sundance Kid. You're not having a good time. But if you're doing okay and someone heckles you, it's actually a, um, it's a verbal uh, challenge to a duel. They are standing up and verbally challenging you to a duel. What they do not realise is the one you are terribly, ex way more experienced than they could be, uh, than they should be, because they, they've never stood up in front of an audience probably, or maybe once or twice. You're doing it all the time. Secondly, you've got a microphone on stage. They haven't. And thirdly, the audience actually wants you to win, because they paid money to see you and not hear the idiot shouting. So I started doing this thing called, I call imposing scenarios. So someone would shout out something like, boring, why don't you say something funny? And you could just let it lie. Well, actually, if they said that one, that's quite a horrible one. Well, say something funny. And I, I, my most confident, I just go, no. <laughs> and then just carry on. Um, uh, but if someone says something weird, then I would just say, uh, this is Stephen, and he's coming along tonight. He's working through some problems. <laughs> and that was good, Steve. Strong diction. But all I heard was, rather barbasa. Robert Barbasak is not going to work. I think you need some words in there. And maybe a, a verb, always good verb, hook it round on a verb. But it's very good. He's going to be tonight. He's going to be shouting a few things. And his psychiatrist said that would be good for him. So well done, Stephen. <laughs> so now, that, that isn't Stephen. Now, if he says, I'm not Stephen, now denying your own self. <laughs> and if he says, I am Stephen, well, we know you're Stephen, Stephen. So I mean... That's where, where you're going to go with that one. But, and, and sometimes you say, now, do another one now. Do it right now, Steve. And then you go, oh, you get flustered. You never would be able to. Um, so you could control whatever they say. I hate you. Well, I know. I know you probably would hate me. But you can work through that. You know? it's just, it, it didn't really. Even if you've got his name and came back, this is Roger. I know he was something else earlier, but he's real. I, his name moves. His name moves with, with the times. He's a flashy guy. He's uh, but he lost his legs in, uh, in, in a, he was just cleaning out his house and he just lost them. I don't know. <laughs> um, I remember, <laughs> but even, even, in those, even in those kind of early days with those kind of gigs, I, you, you had a really clear idea of where you were going. I, I remember a very strange evening where you were a resident compare at Screaming Blue Murder. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, at this club in Kingston or wherever it was. There were, there were three of them. Yeah. But, uh, one was uh, yeah, Kingston. It was uh, the Hampton, Hampton Wick. Wick. Hampton Wick. Yeah. Red Rose. We were on we were on the same bill, and you were the compare. And I, I was giving you a lift home with my then girlfriend, and we were sitting in the car. And I remember saying something to you like, "So, what are you up to for the next few months, Eddie?" And you you just came up. It was the weirdest thing. You said, "Well, I'm going to carry on doing gigs for a bit, and I'm going to build and build, and the gigs are going to get bigger and bigger, and then I'm going to end up I'm, I'm going to do a West End show." And I, by this time, I'm looking at my girlfriend going. What? And you were going, no telly, I'm not going to do any telly, and I'm going to build mill, I'm going to do this West End show. And at the time, I remember thinking, that's crackers. And you did exactly that. And I remember talking, talking to her about a year later, going, do you remember that conversation when he said he was going to do exactly that? So it, it seemed even then that you had this really focused idea of a, the journey you were going to go on. Well, it's mi military. You know, I, have the, I, I sort of have a military plan because I was going to be in the military but instead I didn't so I did this. I showed you the photo earlier. I was quite serious. I wish we had a screen so you could see some of these photos of Eddie and the cadets. Yeah. I was seriously going to do commandos or paratroops and then get into SAS. So this was <laughs> Really? This was my plan. If you look at, you know, the marathons, going touring gigs, I mean, I'm doing the first tour in French now and then German and then I'm going to do Spanish, then Russian, then Arabic, playing Hollywood Bowl. Doing, those, doing these kind of out-of-the-box things, it's all, um, it's kind of like special forces civilian work, you know? <laughs> you know, the, and the marathons was kind of like me saying selection, you know, it's not part of their selection. Are you still hoping they're going to call? Kind, kind of. of. going. Are you kind like one of those guys behind the goal at a, a football match who wears the strip, hoping that when Ronaldo gets injured, they're going to go, you, mate, behind the goal. <laughs> Come on, are you hoping you're going to get that call? No, it's not that. It was just, it's just, uh, you know, that's what I was going to do. I know. So instead, I, I had this military approach to things because, well, if you're, if you're going to be transgender, I came out 30 years ago, and uh, it's, it's not the next move to get yourself ahead back in the day. Now, my, people might say, oh, that, I should be transgender. I wish I, can I do that? How do I do that? So, I, you know, I just, I've done... I, I do the things which scare me but are positive, so that's what I just push forward in that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm determined, I'm a determined twit. So, so, so back then, even that early, were you thinking, I want to act, I want to, you know, all those things. I wanted they... to act when I was seven, you see, I wanted to act before the comedy. The comedy is just a, a side route to getting into acting. Uh, not really, but it, 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 it's, when I was seven, I, I saw a play, it was called, I've worked out what the play is now, it was called A Boy in His Cart by Christopher Fry, and there was a guy, and I think his name was uh, Peter Champion, great name, and he, uh, he, was, he wasn't the main role, but he was playing the mother, and he was with a cart, so I thought it was Mother Courage for a long time, because Mother Courage had a cart, but it wasn't, but anyway, he was getting, I think he was getting laughs and applause, and a great reaction, and I just thought, yes please, yeah, that, this is what I'm going to do, and my mother had died about a year before, and I think it was a substitute for the affection of the audience, this is my analysis of it. And um, so I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And then I tried to get into plays and I tried to get into things. And I was trying really hard and that doesn't really work, you know, in anything in life. If you try really hard, it just doesn't seem to work. You've actually got to prepare and work at it and kind of let go and, and let it flow. Because if you try too hard, I don't know if you found this with writing or, or comedy before, that if you really push it, it, it doesn't work. Whereas if you work at it and just ease into it, then it's, it seems to react better. Well, it's, I, I, yes, you're right about not pushing too hard, but it's that thing we were talking about before about the use of certain muscles, as it were, for, yes. for certain things in terms of creativity. Yeah. And you, you've moved from, from comedy to acting, to, to very yeah. serious acting. You know, yeah. We'll talk about things like Hannibal and stuff in a minute. Um, do, you, do they come from the same place? Are those kind of impulses coming from the same place? Or are they just using different muscles? Are they... If you can find the root of it, this is the, the thing. I, if you find the root of your creativity, I think we all had it. Um, There's this story that they gave um, uh, paper clips to uh, kindergarten kids, and they came up with genius levels of invention when they were that young. And as you got older, the invention got less. And I think when we were kids, we were very open, and then we thought, actually, I can't do that, so I'm not even going to think in that way. But if you can find the center of your creativity, you can, you can go back through it and come out, and you can add things onto it. Um, I mean, Churchill started painting, and his initial painting wasn't good, and then his painting got to, to an okay or pretty good standard. You know, it's, um, he decided he wanted to do it. He got good people teaching him. And I, I think it's that. I think anyone, if, if you're whatever age you are, you can learn something. And you should actually always be learning something new because it's in there. And I think we start to die when we say, well, that's it for life. Um, I'm just going to cruise on in and then I'll just get into the ground and go away. That's not a good thing. You should, if you're 90, learn something in your 90th year. 
I, I think that's the way to, to live. I think you, we've, we've got all this stuff in there and, we, and we, should, we can pull it out of ourselves, especially creativity stuff. So anyway, I, I learned comedy and my early dramas, that, that I, I, I got a separate dramatic agent. I, I, I went to three different agents and t two of them just said no and one said yes. Um, when I'd done that first West End show that you were talking about, I did that in 93, and I went to an agent, and Nikki Van Gelder, she said, yes, okay, let's try this. I said, I do not want any comedy roles. I'm just gonna do dramas. And Paul Greengrass gave me my first actual role, who went on to uh, doing you know, great directing and, uh, and all the Bourne, uh, t t the second and third of the Bourne films. And um, he, I wasn't very good early on because I just switched off all my, I knew I didn't want to do comedy and you don't do it big, I had to just be there. I, I'd, I'd read a lot about acting and how it should be in front of films, just that existing in front of the camera and pulling the audience in through the camera, really. In comedy, we kind of push, there's a, there's a tendency to try and push out on us all, if you're being theatrical, to, to, to grab that stage and push something out. But you can actually pull people in. There's, there's sort of two ways of doing it, and I think the pulling in is, is much better. So anyway, I, I, my initial, if you see any of my early drama stuff, it's not good, because I didn't know what I was doing. I switched off all the comedy muscles, and I just had pointing and and shouting muscles, that's all I have left. <laughs> They're good muscles. They're it's good muscles. Good, but it didn't look very, it just doesn't work. But yeah, I had to go through that. And then people said, oh, he's not good. Um, and, and there was one criticism, one critic said, why do you want to be a so-so actor when you're a really good comedian? I said, because once I was a so-so comedian. And yeah. that's the thing. I, I can take humiliation. In fact, coming out as being transgender, that, which is 30 years ago, the humiliation of that, walking in the streets and people just looking at you and shouting at you and saying horrible, disgusting things to you, I found that, because I was going to say, I'm gonna, I think this is right to do, this is positive for me and for humanity to do this. Um, uh, if you can go, once I learned how to go through that humiliation, it does get better. So I, I learned what that route was. Then I went to street forming and I, I sort of put all my makeup away and I, because I didn't, it's not drag, it's just me wearing clothes. So I just went back into boy mode, as I call it. And I started doing street shows and they were awful. They were really awful. And I was, I was in a double act and I rewrote the show because I thought it was not good. And I made it even worse. It was just awful. I had been a pretty good uh, double act, you know, uh, indoors using sketches and stuff like that. But when I started doing uh, street, we, we couldn't work out how to do it. It was just, the, the audience, attention spans change. If you ever become street performers, I don't think you're all going to become street performers now, but it's just, <laughs> but uh, attention spans change on the street. So adults have, have the attention span of children, their, their attention spans come down to childlike attention spans, and children have the attention spans of animals. Um, <laughs> so kids are just going, what? Look, there's, th there's stuff on the floor. Let's pick it up. Let's eat it. And um, they're just crazy kids. And adults go from like here, you're listening. But if you imagine, they took the roof off and we and we pushed the the uh, hotel to one side, and suddenly there's cars going by and people wandering through, and you'd be listening to bits of this, and you're going, oh look, there was over there. Should we go and get a coffee? There was no glue there. You actually had to get so, you had to get really violent. In fact, you had to get into Tom and Jerry type violence. And one of the funniest things on the street you could say is, um, can we get a, a kid out? Okay, the kid come for. We're going to kill this kid. And. Uh, <laughs> They would laugh and laugh. <laughs> it was just the oddest thing. It became Tom and Jerry. You had to go to that thing. You had to, it became physical situation comedy. That's what I worked at. You couldn't do uh, idea stuff. That just, they wouldn't have the glue out there. You had to do really broad stuff. You had to get a volunteer, you had to get on a unicycle. You had to do something that had a story in it uh, that, and, and involve a member of the audience because then they'd stick around. I used to get, I got up on a five foot unicycle and that was my big show because I called it my, big bullshit show because I think people would stick around, even if it was raining, to see if I died. Uh, <laughs> actually physically died. He might fall off and die. Yeah, it could be like, it's like a car crash waiting to happen. I, so. that was, I always suspected that's why people watched things like Ski Sunday. And, <laughs> no, and seriously, and the Horse of the Year show. I just thought they wanted to see people hurt themselves. There was always that hope there'd be a hideous accident. Well, car, yeah, car, that, that must be at the back of people's minds, yeah. Um, you know, that's why dressage is, I was, I've talked a lot about dressage, there's less car crash stuff yeah. in dressage. You, if you do switch on dressage, you don't know what's going on at any point. Even if the guy's telling you what, oh, he's done a very good double leg twist, and you go, oh, really? <laughs> is that good? Is that bad? I, the horses just seems to be wandering Dancing. around. But you, yes. you went, so you went from, you say you, 
when you started acting, you said, I don't want to do any comedy. Yeah, and, and film, I don't want right, to film. But by the, and by the same token, when I moved from comedy to writing, I didn't want to write anything funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's largely because I didn't like comedy crime novels. I, I still have a slight problem with comedy crime novels. You know, if I pick up a book and it says caper on the back, I'm, I'm putting it right, I don't know. <laughs> Don't a caper. Um, because it's what I like to read, was darker stuff, so I tried to write what I like to read. So were you, were you, you must be a fan of comedy, or do you prefer when you see movies and stuff? I, do you no, want I, darker I, stuff? I, I, yeah, I don't watch much comedy. I mean, Little Miss Sunshine was down as a comedy, but it's really a quirky drama. Quirky dramas, I'm okay doing. Black comedies, I'm okay doing. But they've got to have a good story. I felt the Americans are always better than we were. I mean, we had the carry-ons, which are kind of beloved, but also... You know, it's seaside <laughs> postcard type humor, and, and you know, I, when I was a kid, I had a, I had Saturday Night Comedy was my top of my of my my um, taste buds, and then I then I after in a post Python world, I just couldn't take any of the mainstream comedies. It's just because you've seen the jokes go by, and so we we ended up wanting to break the stuff. So yeah, I, I won't watch much comedy. Uh, I will watch some comedy, but it's got to be weird. There's a great little film out that. Um, one of the guys, the uh, New Zealand guys from Flight of the Concords, did yeah. about these vampires who, who live in... Have you heard about this? It's a, it's a sort of mock documentary, but it's done in real... It's not a drama. They, it's about three vampires who are living in a house and how they get on in Wellington uh, because they can only go out at night and they're trying to get people back so they can bite them and eat their blood, drink their blood, you know. And it's just vampires. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Hey, we can't, when we're getting ready, we can't tell. We have to draw pictures of what we look like so we can see, you know, you look like that, you look like that, because no one can see what anyone looks like. Do you remember, do you remember the comedian Sean Percival? There was a great Brummie comedian, Sean Percival, who used to do this routine about, why do you never see working-class vampires? You know, in the, in the movies, they're always, they're counts, and they're all like, hello, welcome to my home. You never see one son of blue stuff, you know, shaving rash and stuff going, oh, bloody hell, look at this. And going, you never see a working class vampire no. like on a council estate. No. Yeah. I think that'd be a good thing. That's true. I, yeah, I, I did loads of stuff on vampires. Like, <laughs> You've got an hour on can't vampires. You do, couldn't you just do that? Because apparently you could do that. And if you did that, then the vampire would you just, you just, in fact, just hang them. Right, just draw it on your clothes and you just go around. And the vampire hunters never go out looking for the vampire in the morning. You know, they always go, should we go and, should we go and kill the vampire now? Nobody goes, it's half past eight at night, mate. It's going to be yes. dark really soon. Nobody says that. You know, yeah. they, they lie in bed and they kind of waste an opportunity. They've, n they've never got it working. So listen, you, lots of acting now, lots and yeah. lots of acting. And in fact, I should say that actually the reason Eddie is here, rather bizarrely, uh, is that I called Eddie to ask him if he would play Phil Hendricks in a uh, new series that's coming next year. Uh, and he can't, unfortunately, which is very sad. I know, I know. But at the very end of the phone call, I kind of went, oh, by the way, Eddie, what, what are you doing in July? I don't suppose you... And he, we said yes, which is the reason he's here. Um, but you've done loads, loads, of, loads and loads of stuff. Uh, and Hannibal, obviously, is a, is a really big deal. But you, uh, you amazed me earlier by saying you don't watch it. It's too scary. Yeah, I, you... I get free... I get... Because I try to be brave in my life, but um, uh, the, the truth of, of Hannibal, of what's going on there, is um, I can't take. If I, if I got into horror, and I'm not sure if... Because this is horror rather than crime, isn't yeah, it? I, yeah, I probably... And in horror, I mean, you've got people, various... Like, I mean, it's beautiful, horror, disgusting death. Um, and uh, I, the reality of it freaks the hell out of me. But the, the, the truth of the drama is something I, I find it great to play. Um, I just, I, I can do that, but it, I find it quite difficult to, to take that in. Did you, know the whole, did you know the whole Hannibal Lecter stuff before that? I no. knew of it, but again, I, I hadn't inhaled. I don't read things as well. This is my problem because I'm dyslexic, so I'm, I'm a very slow reader. I have to audio, I have to have people sit down and, and tell me about things. Um, <laughs> because I'm just a, the slowest reader in the planet. I'm trying to get, I got a book on speed reading, but then I didn't get through that book. <laughs> and I'm, I've downloaded another book on speed reading, which I haven't finished. And, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to read faster. But um, yeah, so this is my problem. But I, I do like the idea of, I, I like the idea of people sitting down with a, Big book just sounds great, but I've just struggled. I got to the Narnia books when I was a kid. I don't know, there's something out there, fantasy, and Isaac Asimov when I was a kid, but it, I still wait, I just wait for the films to come. Or you listen, you listen to audio books. Yeah. Um, so it's a, is it a different Eddie then? 
that, sure. that goes out on stage at the Hollywood Bowl or walks onto a film set where there's a camera there. Uh, it's know, interesting. I, mean, I, mean, I, can, I can move between them quite uh, happily now. And um, uh, I love it on a film set, because I broke into Pinewood when I was 15. And, um, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. You can't, you can't just throw that in as a little nugget of information. No. You broke into Pinewood, which yeah. is still the military thing you were hoping there was going to be kind of... No, that's it. It was more SAS thing. That's what the S If you're going to be in the SAS, you'd break into Pinewood. The SAS version of how you get into films. Um, okay, so I was... Well, I'm very analytical. I, I have a ruthless logic... Okay. I've even got a theory of the universe, which I can tell you later, which has got okay. nothing to do with... Okay, no, go it's on. two paragraphs, and I can give you a theory. theory. Oh, fair enough. Because no, this is the weird thing. I just keep applying logic to... Because I actually self-analyse myself from the sexuality front. Because I went to see uh, a doctor when I was at university, and I said, can I see a psychiatrist? And he never got me an appointment. So I decided to self-analyse myself. And I didn't get to any big conclusions. I decided to dump guilt and shame... And then, uh, but I use this logic. I, it is quite, and comedy has a logic, and, and story has a logic, you know. Um, anyway, wh what was I talking about? Breaking I, into Pinewood. Breaking into Pinewood. Yeah, so, um, so I, I said I wanted to act. I was seven years old, I wanted to act, and I locked it in. It just, it was like, it was like, like epiphany moment. Boom, I know where I was, I know what I was watching, I know who was in it, everything. And I want to go back there and do a gig there, just because I'm, I'm not doing gigs. But, um, so, uh, time went on, and at a certain point, another sort of semi-epiphany moment happened when I thought, those people on the telly, they're, they're the act, that's, that's really, they've paid them, that's a life, you do that, that's a career. That's, that, uh, how does that work? Oh, they got, and I realized, you know, it was the 70s and you couldn't stop and rewind anything and freeze frame. So at the end, I just sat there with a pen and, and looked at all the credits and going, this is the best boy with a pen. I don't know what the best boy is. And it's very difficult to write them down because they'd go, but once they'd go past, you'd never see that again for maybe three years, yeah? So you just had that moment. And, and out of all that, I didn't really get much except that, that a lot of them were made at Pinewood Studios, Ivor Heath Bucks. <laughs> so, so I, and that's an odd address. And I, I looked at Ivor Heath Bucks. Like, that must be an address. That must be something like that. So um, uh, I, I went in and I bought a map of the United Kingdom, which had alphabetically every town and village and city in the country. That's how they used to do it. So I went down it. And Ivor Heath, well, I found the, the thing for, before I bought it. I went, Ivor Heath Bucks, it's here. Okay, so I bought the map. And I, I was on the south coast, Bexhill on Sea, so I took a train to London, and I took a tube to Uxbridge, I took a bus to Iverheath, and I got out, and I said, is there a Pinewood Studios? And he said, it's about half a mile down the road, mate. So I wandered down the road, and I went up to the big gabled entrance of Pinewood Studios, and I said, um, uh, I'm going to be in films and stuff. So I, uh, can I come in? <laughs> and I said, fuck off, kid. <laughs> No, um, can I just, I'd just like, you know, I'd just like to be in the film. Uh, can I come in then? Uh, nah, you, nah, nah, we're going to kill you with a gun. Um, no, they just, it, it was a no deal. I hadn't, I hadn't worked out that bit of the, how to get past the guys. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not, I've, I've come miles for this. So I started walking around the whole of Pinewood, which is huge. And there was another entrance, which was much more a, a, a commercial entrance. And um, there were lorries coming up and people, people walking in. Some people who were checking, it was a bit like where Eagles Dare, because action movies is really my thing, I know. All the action movies and war movies, I know these. So where Eagles Dare, uh, when they're getting into the Schloss Adler, which is the uh, <laughs> Eagles, Eagle Castle, and, uh, and uh, they're, they're going, I think it's Schloss Adler, and, then, and they're going past the thing, and that's where the, the, the sentry post, and that's where Richard Burton turns to um, Clint Eastwood, and in total English, not even a hint of a German accent, goes, who was that young woman you were with? I, her name was Fred. Fred, was it really Fred? And they were doing this chit-chat visit here. I mean, I could have done that in German. Yeah, what's this one? Yeah, sie heißen, sie heißt, yes, Fred. Yeah, yeah, Fred. Es war sehr schön. Sie war sehr schön, yeah. Anyway, but they, they do that and they get it. So I did that version of getting into Pinewood Studios. Sorry, this is getting a bit complicated, this story. But they had the guard post with a drawbridge thing and they weren't dressed up as Nazis. Um, uh, but I, I worked out that you've got to walk in bright and, you know, clip, as if imaginary clipboard is in your hand and on a mission. So I, I just did the, 
And suddenly I was in, I was in, I was in, I was in Pinewood. And then I said, I, this became a piece of stand-up, I said I crept around Pinewood, hoping that someone would say, hey, the Creeping Kid, we're, we're doing a film called The Creeping Kid. You could be, <laughs> do you want to be the, but that actually wasn't true, because in fact, I, if you crept around Pinewood, then people would notice you. Why are you creeping? That's wrong. So I actually walked around quite fast on a mission speed, you know? I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going here, I'm going there, I don't know where anything is, I'm going... Went up to the Bond stage, and, and I, I didn't come to any... I just didn't know how to... Someone hire me, someone find me and hire me. This is coming out of my pores, but I didn't know who was shooting there, and there were people talking on the Bond stage, and I thought... Do I go in? But then if they know, they find out that I'm thrown out. That should have been my last move with hindsight. I should have gone up and said, okay, here's the last thing. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, I would have knocked on the door, which is not what you do on a soundstage. Um, I go on, hello, can I go? Anyway, so they, they, I just walked quite fast around Pinewood Studios and then out of Pinewood Studios. And I'd taken some names and addresses down, and, but it was a film editors and it didn't quite work. Then I went to Elstree Studios and I broke into Elstree Studios and I was... <laughs> Yeah, this is it. I used to do very long shots. I, when OTT happened with Chris Tarran, I came down from Sheffield University because I was really into Tiz Was, and that was happening. It was the biggest thing happening, and Alexi Sale was on it. And I, I'd heard that Peter Sellers had phoned up, because he could do brilliant impressions, Peter Sellers, and he'd phoned up two well-known writers, and he'd done the impression of their agent or some actor that they would, I think an actor that, that they would know. And he says, um, I, I just want to, hello, it's, 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 uh, Golden Simpson, I don't know, it's, yeah. um, it's, uh, this is Roger McDingdang, and um, uh, you know me, anyway. Uh, Peter Sellers, seen this young man, Peter Sellers, very good, very good. Anyway, he did this faultless impression, and he, he recommended himself, and the guys were going, well, well, I'd, 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 I, or maybe it was to a producer or something, but he said, well, I'd, where can I find this guy? And he says, no, actually, I'm Peter Sellers, and uh, I can do impressions, and I'd like you to be my agent. And so, so that happened. So with that story, I went down to try and phone Chris Tarrant from Birmingham. I got off at Spaghetti Junction, coming down, hitching down from Sheffield. I walked down and got a bus from the bottom of Spaghetti Junction into the centre of town. I I found that there were two phones in Birmingham that had the international phones where you didn't go bip, 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 bip as it used to. It was just changing into ones where you could load it up and you, then you could pretend you were in an office. I spent all day phoning his office trying to talk to, uh, trying to, talk to his agent. Um, uh, uh, no, no, I was pretending to be his agent. I was trying to talk to Chris Tarrant. <laughs> that's it. So, and, uh, and he said, well, he's out, he's out. No, I, that's all right. I had to initially phone Chris Tarrant's agent. Sorry, I'm just going back on the plan because I'm trying to work out what the hell I was doing. I had to phone Chris Townsend to hear what he sounded like to, for some spurious story. Then once I heard what he sounded like, I would do a, a bad impression of him because I'm no good at impressions. And that was me. I was going to talk to Chris Townsend and said, this guy, Eddie is it's very good. You know, I gave him the posh voice and <laughs> based on nothing in particular. That was my plan. But the agent was in London all day. And I kept phoning him. Is he in now? Is Harold uh, McDingdang in? No, he's out. And so then at the end of the day, I just decided to phone Chris Tarrant and what the hell, and I got through to his secretary and I said, hello, this is Harold uh, McDavish here. Um, can I talk to Chris, please? And uh, the woman said, what? It's Harold here. Harold, uh, Harold, here. Harold who? Harold McDavish. Just put me through to Chris. Then. Which Harold McDavish? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I would do, you know, I would, you know, it was, this is my 43 marathons version of trying to get the, into things. The weird thing is, it's like you went to do these things without any idea of the consequence, you know, of what would happen. No. I, I spoke to, I was speaking to Omid Jalili recently and he, because uh, he's just got this book out and I was talking to him about his book. And he did the craziest things. He faked all his A-level results. Right. You know, he got like, you know, D's and he just changed them into A's and then went to universities, just visited the universities, just walked in going, can I come here? Can I? Thinking that they would go, yeah, come on in. It never struck him for a minute that they wouldn't. And there was this kind of absurd confidence that it would all work out in the end. And it just seems like you had that same confidence, naivety, chutzpah, whatever you want to call I, it. I think it's chutzpah. Um, it, it, was it was just it, desperation, I think, is, is where, you know, I, 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 I was doing an accounting degree. I'd blown the accounting degree after one year. I knew that if, if my stepmother knew I had an accounting degree, she would have chased me all around the, the country saying, get a job, get a job, you have a degree. So I thought, I have to not get this degree. And, <laughs> uh, and so I 
pulled out of that, and I just, yeah, because I pulled out in 1981, summer of 81, that's when I came out of further education, and my career took off in 1990. So uh, that was nine years adrift, or 1990, no, about 91 it took off. So it was about 10 years of, those are my wilderness years. I had them right up front. Churchill had his midlife, but I had mine right up front. And I consider it from seven, because I was pushing really hard to get into things. Like when I was eight, I was, seven or eight, I was in a, in a they did a Beauty and the Beast, and I didn't get a line, I didn't get a good role, but I was one of the street urchins with all the other no-hopers in the class. And, <laughs> but we had one collective line that was, oh, beauty, don't go. Oh, remember, you know how kids say, oh, beauty, don't go. <laughs> but I noticed in the, because we didn't do many rehearsals, but I noticed at one point that surely if I said this really quickly, then no one, because they're all going, oh, beauty. <laughs> So when the lion came up, I heard, oh, beauty, don't go. <laughs> it was my line. Then it, the, next one, the next cue was picked up, and it was on. It became my line. I got, so I just would steal that. And there was one where I wasn't in the choir, because that was a very girly thing to do, and I wasn't doing girly. And then, even, in fact, even now, I wouldn't be in the girly section, because I'm in the, uh, the, the tomboy section. That's what I consider my sexuality. Anyway, so I wasn't in the choir, but the choir got to do G uh, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is a fantastic musical, and it's great fun and great songs, and I thought, I have to do this musical, I have to be in this musical. So I just stood with them at every rehearsal. <laughs> so, so they had a notice on the board saying, oh, the choir, meet thing with the Joseph and Technicolor Dreamcoat rehearsals, and I, I was just there. I was just always there. And they'd say, we're going to move this table. I would just move the table across the <laughs> I just, you know, I just was there all the time. And eventually I was in it, and eventually I had one solo line to, to uh, out there's a whole Elvis bit who plays the Pharaoh. Uh, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pharaoh sings and Elvis kind of stuff. And I, and I had some sort of one solo line. Was, what was that, Elvis? Say that again. <laughs> Say it, Dr. King. I know, there's some one line that I got out of it, and then I could sing and all the rest of the stuff. So I would, I would just... You know, I would just do it. And then in the end, I started writing my own stuff because I discovered Python. I hit puberty. I wasn't a very tall kid. All the tall kids got roles at school. And I was a smaller kid. And I, the amount of sugar I was taking in and the amount of hormones that were mixing up. Apparently, sugar plus hormones equals Captain Acne comes to stay. And then <laughs> there's just no way when you look in the mirror and say, well, I wouldn't have sex with me. You know, it's just... <laughs> A lot of us hit that. There were one or two pretty kids, boys and girls, and they just said, hey, I have no acne at all. Isn't my life just fine? But then they die in their 30s. Uh, when, which is fair. Which, which I think is fair. Know, they tend to, you know, it just all blows up. And it's, everyone's trying to be invited to the party. This is the thing. And some people just get invited to the party from day one, and the rest of us have to work our backsides off, and then we just get into the party. We break into the party under the, under the wall. And uh, reverse cold it. So, yeah, so, so I, would, I would do these things. I was just sort of endlessly determined. I have the determination genetic. I think I have that. And I would just do these long shots. I would, I would just keep pushing. And, and uh, now I'm here. We, um, we've got about 15 minutes left. I can't believe how quickly the time has gone. We've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, so please have some questions ready. If we could put the lights up a bit, people will be coming around with mics. Just before we uh, ask the first question, we've probably got time to get your theory, theory of the universe in. Anyway. Oh, yeah, theory of the universe. So let's just get the theory of the universe this and then we'll it, have guys. some questions. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, quickly, okay. We're all in this room now. We flash back 500 years, Elizabethan times. I say to you all, everyone head off in different directions, all, all around the, the, the points of the, of the compass. Um, if you all go off, it's Elizabethan times, it's like, all go off in those directions, go past walls, take a boat, keep going. If you all head off in these directions, we'll all meet up back here. And if you were religious, you would have said, this is against God, you're a heretic, and we're going to burn you. And if you were a scientist, you would have said, this is illogical. I hear what you're saying, but it's totally illogical. Now we know that that's true. Now it was true back then, it has been true forever, because we're living on a ball. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to hold in our heads the image. I think we take us right now, we flow up into, uh, out of space outside our solar system, and I say, now just go off in any plane, any direction. I think if you go long enough time, you come back to the same place. I think that's the only way it works. Everything is curves up in space. All the planets are curved, all the ellipt it's all elliptical, everything's moving around. I just think if you go on the universe, there cannot be a wall in the universe behind which there's a squirrel with a gun saying, ooh, we haven't... <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't look there, we haven't worked this bit out. The only way it can work is if it wraps around on itself. It's got to, in whichever way you go, it wraps around on itself. This is, this is, my, this is 
putting pure logic into it. I think you go along enough time, it comes around to the, to the same point, and we can't hold it in our heads like we couldn't back 500 years ago, holding our heads how the planet works, because we are still standing on a ball. There are people, if you go straight down there for long enough, there are Chinese people going, or Australian people going, you know, good eye, mate, we're just here in the crime uh, novel uh, writers here of Australia. Or oh, the great talking. big trumpet listening, really yes. long trumpet. But they are right down there. You know, we know that's true. We haven't gone down through that route, but we know that... And that's insane. That's, but but it, we know it's true. So that's what I think works. And then Hubble said, with his telescope, he said, the, the, the galaxies are moving up faster and faster. They're expanding. But I think they're going around the back of the universe, and then they're going to do a big crunch, and then they have a big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch, and it's like a heartbeat, and it goes on forever. It has gone on forever. There is no God. No one's controlling it. And if you put random into the history of the world, it all makes sense. If you put a God with a plan in, then that God is... It's as if he has a plan called, I have no plan. <laughs> there you go. Right. Who has a question? Please put your hand up if you have questions. Yes. It would be right at the back. <laughs> there you go. There's a question coming. It's got to be a good one. The, mic, the mic's being passed like a baton. There you go. Hi. Oh. Have you wrote your book, a book about your marathons at all? And if you haven't, can you do one very quickly? Because it's my girlfriend's birthday on the 8th of August. And she's, <laughs> and she's desperate for it. Uh. No, I haven't. I, there isn't a book on it, and it's all just gone into myth. We don't actually know if I actually did them. It's, uh, maybe that was just a weird seven and a half weeks of my life. But uh, it, was, it was a good thing to do, though. And people, you, if you ever do... After, if you, I, I, I ran 43 marathons. But if you ever do, after 10, it gets easier. That's the, that's the, now, it sounds kind of crazy, and it is a bit glib. But... Um, and, uh, but it is actually true because it's the brain that controls the body. Because you know that there's some very fit people and they go, oh, they're doing a, you know, a 10K or a marathon, whatever, and they didn't quite make it and they suddenly just packed up. Whereas someone else who doesn't seem fit, it's, it's, it's this thing. That guy who fell down the crevasse and he crawled himself up because his brain said, I'm not giving up. Um, uh, back in the day, who was the guy? There was Scott and there was the other guy. Who's the other guy who went, who dragged everyone through to St. Uh, to the, the St. Arctic Explorer. Yes. Um, Shackleton. 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 Wouldn't give the up. The heckling now. Shackleton. Shackleton. <laughs> Wouldn't give up. It's, it's, it's the determination thing. So uh, this thing will drag on the marathon thing. So after 10, every morning you get up and the brain goes, where are we going today? But the first 10, the brain's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Just, this is nuts. Am I going to eat porridge and then keep running? Surely we should stop and have a bath. And I did have a bath. I used to have a bath with, with eight buckets of ice. And my tour manager would phone her, can you get eight ice buckets? Because we're staying in three, two, three-star hotels, um, little small hotels around the United Kingdom. I said, can you get eight ice buckets worth of ice, please? And, and I used to order a gin and tonic as well. And I used to put... <laughs> because I thought, why not? You know, I've just had a rough day. And... I would put my, my computer on the toilet seat and I'd watch a documentary while I was sitting in, the, in the 10 degree water uh, for 15 minutes. And it's, you know, it's just really kind of cold with all this ice floating around. But um, so we ordered this eight ice buckets of things and we got gin and tonic and the guy said, do you want ice with the gin and tonic? She <laughs> <laughs> said, no, no. Just, We're all right. Don't, so don't no, I think is the answer to your no, question. No. I'm yes. afraid it's on YouTube. Anybody else? Yes, just, just behind you. There you go. Yes, sir. Hi, guys. Yo. Ooh, that's a bit loud. Mark, you touched on um, just earlier on about uh, Eddie playing Hendrix in mm. future um, TV adaptations of your book. Like many of us here, we've all got our visual uh, idea of the characters in your books. And I have to agree with you, Eddie was my visual representation oh, of really? Hendrix. Oh, really? So, Eddie, is there a reason why you, you can't play <laughs> Hendrix? Yes, is there a reason why you can't play Hendrix? Would you consider it in the future? <laughs> well, is Hendrix the big lead guy? No, no, no. He's, See, the, my, he's the gay, the gay. We talk, we've had this discussion and you, yeah. you don't want to do it. And Hendrix it's... is gay and I'm, uh, I'm just transgender. Uh, but it's an acting role, so it shouldn't be. But I actually have to be, I have to be a little careful with alternative sexuality because uh, you go in there and they say, oh, so you really are gay. They say, no, no, actually, just playing a role there. I'm actually, I'm a wannabe lesbian. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
I'd like to play a character that has my sexuality, but also I'm looking for big old leads in... in if, because if you sign... Like, greedy. You're greedy. I'm, I, well, I, I, you know, I break into things and I run all these marathons. I want yeah. to get it. And so... Uh, but there's another ser series that I'm just waiting on right this second to find out whether I'm doing that, and that's uh, an HBO one. So, uh, so, so stuff you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, I think that's no. A well, hang on, but if you but make no, it, what's interesting though is that you you didn't you you'd thought of Eddie just reading the books. I mean, that's that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, I, this is in the Thorn books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, but I, if you made if the books were called Hendrix, yeah, you know, then I would. <laughs> I'd be right. If you do, if you do that, if I'll you have a write, word. If you write a, one episode of <laughs> fucking Hendrix, okay, then I'm much more enticed. You know, honestly, I'm only arguing actors. from my my own agent's point of view. That's what my agent would be saying. Probably time for a couple more, or maybe even one more. Actually, yes, yes, right there. It does look like a Millennium Falcon is just landing. These lights they are, are very powerful lights. Yes. Are you going to use your fame to help protect the BBC? Ooh. Absolutely. I've already said it yesterday. I absolutely. I think it's it's a badge of honour around the world. It's a fantastic organisation. It's I, I they they on the television. I was talking. I went to Djibouti because I was born in Yemen. I was born in the, the city of Aden, Aden, and uh, and I was talking about the refugee situation. They've had a civil war, and they brought up on Sky News. They said, um, you know, BBC. And I said, uh, Leveson. What about the Leveson Agreement? You remember that was that, that that's where we were going to get the the, the right-wing press was going to just sort of just calm down and we're going to have some rules so they couldn't do the f phone hacking, the Millie Dowler situation. That seems to have gone away and now we're attacking the BBC. Doesn't that just look like revenge from the four people who run that? So yes, absolutely. I totally agree that the BBC should be uh, protected. It's a wonderful thing. The people around the world, you know, HBO is the BBC of America and the BBC is the HBO of of the United Kingdom. Uh, we've got to keep it and as, as strong as we can. And this is just vested interest. It's the commercial companies, and particularly probably Rupert Murdoch, saying, um, I'd like more of what you have. Mm. Yeah, it's quite simple. And so we Hurrah. can back on it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, listen, firstly, thank you. Thank you all very much for coming. If you could just... Uh, let Eddie and I scoot out through the middle because we're both going to be signing. Eddie's going to be signing DVDs. I'm going to be signing DVDs, but anything. I'll sign I'm going to sign downloads. I'm going to sign downloads. We'll sign downloads and, uh, and body parts. Uh, thanks very much for coming up. I hope you had a great evening. Thank you very much, Mr. Eddie Izzard. Thanks, Macy. Let's get out of here. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.